0: O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, a parable that Jesus tells. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. You know how common it is in the Gospels for Jesus to compare the kingdom of God to agriculture, to growing something from the ground, to planting, to harvesting, waiting for something to produce fruit. It's one of his favorite images. It's one of the images that would have made most sense to the people of Israel in that part of the Middle East where growing crops and raising livestock was an important part of their livelihood. Jesus is usually, the Son of God, is usually the one who is sowing the seed. So Jesus tells that parable of the sower who casts seed on the road and on the rocky soil and among the thorns and in the good soil. And Jesus explains, the Son of God, that's the one. I am the one who sows the seed. But it's important to observe that the way that Jesus sows the seed, especially after he has ascended into heaven, is by sending his apostles to preach that same word, which is what Paul did on his missionary journeys throughout the entire area of uh, Jerusalem and Galilee and into uh, the Minor Asia Minor and all the way into Europe. Paul was an apostle scattering the seed on behalf of Jesus. And one of the things that you notice about all the parables about sowing seeds, especially this one, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The thing to observe is that the one who is casting the seed has very little control over what happens to it. He throws it out there and then hopes, prays, that something will come of it. He hopes that the weather will be good, that there'll be sunshine when it's needed, and rain when it's needed. He hopes, but he can't make that seed grow. He can't convince it to grow. It depends on something else entirely. This is what makes being an apostle like Paul really kind of a tenuous job. He's supposed to go and spread God's word on God's behalf, but he has no control whatsoever over the outcome. He can try as hard as he wants. He can work harder and harder and harder, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be more fruit. He can really furrow his brow and dig in his plow and do all of the things that he knows he's supposed to do, but the harder he works is no guarantee of an outcome. In fact, Jesus himself, when he sends out his disciples, warns them that they're going out as sheep among wolves because they don't know whether the people they are sent to will hear God's word gladly or that they will reject it whether the peace that they bring from Jesus will be received or tossed away. St. Paul didn't know how people would receive his message. In fact, he met all kinds of resistance along the way. So just before he comes to Thessalonica, the city that he's writing this letter to, he was in Philippi. And in Philippi, he and Silas spent some time in prison because they were rejected by the people there. Now, Paul saw some success. The Philippian jailer converted. They were sent away because the Philippian authorities discovered that he was a Roman citizen. But still, they were sent away. And even here in Thessalonica, where Paul arrives with Silas, he has some initial success, and then the Jews in the synagogue rise up against him. And he's driven away. He has to go to a different town, the town of Berea, which he praises, because they, at least, are willing to test what he says against the Scriptures. He knows what it is to meet resistance. He knows what it is to scatter the seed and to watch nothing come up from the ground whatsoever. He knows that he has no, no responsibility, no control over what happens to that seed. That he is like a sheep among wolves. And that it might be the end of his life, his next stop. At the same time, it may also be that he arrives in a place and he preaches God's word and it produces fruit in abundance. He doesn't know, he doesn't get to decide. It's unlike any other occupation. <laughs> right? if, you, if Paul is working as a tent maker, which he did, he just has to work harder to make more tents. But working harder for Paul is no guarantee that there will be more Christians because it is God who makes Christians. Now, to the world, being an apostle seems like a completely foolish kind of a venture. It's not even really like taking a risk, like being an entrepreneur and starting a company, not knowing what might come, but that if you really put in a lot of grit and effort, something will, make a, will come out of it, and you'll have learned some lessons along the way. There's really no sense of that in being an apostle. It seems like a gamble. You're just tossing the dice. Who knows how it will turn out? There are no guarantees. That's how the world thinks about apostles. That's how our flesh tends to think of it. And that's good. It's good to recognize that there are no guarantees in the work of an apostle, in his efforts, in what he says or does, because it is God who makes the guarantee. So this is what gives Paul confidence to do his work. It's God who provides the guarantee. It's God whose word whether or not people receive it, whose word is true, whose word was proven true on the cross when Jesus died to forgive the sins of the world. If that word is true, it doesn't matter whether anyone receives it. It still needs to sound out. And that word, God promises, will not return void. So even if Paul doesn't get to see the outcome that he wants. He wants the entire city of Thessalonica to convert. But even if he doesn't get to see that, he knows that the word has not returned empty, that God has used it for his glory, even when that means that it is a word of judgment against sinners, even when that means that word results in closed ears and closed doors and being driven away, Paul knows that God is getting done the work that he wants to get done. And above all else, Paul knows this, this guarantee. That Jesus's sheep do hear His voice. So when Paul arrives in a town like Thessalonica and he preaches God's word, he is sure that whoever among those people are God's elect, whoever among those people are the sheep of Jesus, they will hear and they will follow. And that is what gives him confidence to carry on. And that is a beautiful thing, because that's exactly what his hearers need. They don't need Paul to come in confident in his own abilities thinking that he's going to be eloquent or he's going to make a pitch or an argument that they will believe. He doesn't, they don't need any of that. They need the cross of Jesus, the truth of God's word, the promise that his word is effective, that it does what it says, and that for those who are called, who are chosen by God, there is salvation in that word. This is an important lesson for you and for me as hearers of God's word. Anyone who peddles anything other than this truth, that God's word is salvation for us, that in the cross of Jesus is forgiveness of sins, anyone who peddles anything else is a liar, is peddling himself and not God's word, getting in the way, in fact, of that sowing of the seed, sowing something else, something which cannot ever grow or produce fruit. This is why we come to church. Not... To hear one man's opinion, not to hear one man's voice, but to hear God's Word. That's why you come to church. Which is why, no matter who's in the pulpit, no matter who's speaking, no matter whether you like his personality, whether you like the way he looks or the way he sounds, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter so long as he's preaching God's Word. That's what matters. Because that is what produces fruit. And that is what gave Paul confidence. He said to the Corinthians, I came to you not with any kind of eloquence. In fact, Paul was kind of criticized for being very forceful in his writing, but very mild in his presence. He uh, seemed to talk a big talk when he wrote letters, but was a mild mannered guy when he was present. Paul says, It doesn't matter whether I'm writing to you with boldness or speaking to you quietly and softly, so long as you hear God's word. That's what matters. And when it comes to the Thessalonians, Paul has a beautiful opportunity because the Thessalonians, unlike some other congregations, not only heard God's word, but kept it. When Paul writes to the Galatians and to the Corinthians, he's rebuking them for having neglected God's word, for having heard the gospel and then turning away from it. But when it comes to the Thessalonians, Paul is full of joy because he remembers how they received God's word in faith, showing love, and full of conviction. Hoping in the resurrection. And they received it even in the midst of afflictions. So Paul preached in a synagogue and the Jews rose up to drive him out. And yet, even so, some believed. They received it in the midst of afflictions with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is remembering in this first part of the letter, in chapter 1. He's remembering what a wonderful gift God gave to those Thessalonians. And also, thus, what a wonderful gift God gave to Paul. That he got to see the fruit. It wasn't guaranteed. He couldn't make it happen. But he got to see it. And he rejoiced. He rejoiced even though he had to leave them behind. Paul had to move on and wrote them a letter to check up on them and to teach them some things. But he rejoiced that he had received good news from them. In fact, the report of them went throughout the whole region so that everybody was amazed at how faithful the Thessalonians were. That's a marvelous thing. And that's the kind of praise... That we should desire to be known, not for our piety, not to be known for our glamorous good works, but simply this. To be known for the fact that we trust in Jesus. To be known for the fact that we love the way Jesus loves. To be known for the fact that we don't hope in things of this life, but that we hope in the resurrection. And we should take our cue there from the Thessalonians. This is how it showed up in their life. They turned away from idols and towards the living God. Now, that was really obvious among the Thessalonians because there were, of course, temples to idols in that part of the world, in that part of Macedonia. It's not so in our world. You can't say that you turned away from idols, that is, you stopped going and worshipping in some pagan temple before you became a Christian. But we can, in fact, still say that being a Christian means that you have turned away from idols and, in fact, your whole life long continue to turn away from idols. Things that would rob you of trust in God, things that would promise and not be able to deliver. Things that would call you to hope in them beyond your hope in God, to fear, love, and trust them instead of God. Take your cue from the Thessalonians here. Hear God's word. Receive that seed which has been sown into your ears. Turn away from idols. Turn away from everything that makes false promises. Turn towards God. Fear, love, and trust in him above all things. And as Paul finishes this section, This is how he wants us to live our lives, the way the Thessalonians are living theirs, hoping and waiting for the return of Jesus, not for anything else, not for things temporary and fleeting, but waiting for that, waiting for our redemption, which is drawing near. Put your hope in God. Rejoice that he has sown the seed among you. Rejoice that you are his called and chosen, that you are sheep who hear his voice, and thank God that you continue to hear it.